Jesus is not a concept. Jesus Jesus lives and he is Lord. The first fruits of a mighty resurrection to come. But in him, you're already a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And when Jesus comes, the judge of all will be raised in glory. I reckon by the end of tomorrow, I can get all of annual conference down into about 30 words. That'll make it easy next time we do the resurrection. We'll just send a text. (laughs) Last night, we looked at the question of what happens after death. We saw the answer from the Christian scriptures is judgment before the Lord Jesus and resurrection, either a resurrection to immortal, transformed physical life or a resurrection to condemnation under the just judgment of God. Well, the question we're thinking about tonight is, how does that certain future, which is what the Bible calls hope, how does that shape our life in the present? And what I want to show you from the Christian Scriptures is that Christians are not just idly sitting by, twiddling our collective thumbs, waiting for God's promised future to arrive, No, our sure Christian hope transforms the way we live in the present. But to understand all the ways in which our future resurrection impacts on the present, we need to take a step back and see the big picture in which our future resurrection takes place. The ultimate Christian hope is not to escape the material world in some sort of resurrection body, but it's actually to live forever in a transformed and perfected creation. We're going to look at four key Bible passages that describe this promised future for the universe. So you got your Bible there? Here we go. Please turn with me to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 25. I'm reading Isaiah 65, starting at verse 17. The Lord says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. 
and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This prophecy is a picture of God fulfilling his promises to Old Testament Israel. Notice how Jerusalem featured there in verses 18 and 19. But the promise is couched in creation language. Verse 17, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. It's a reference to Genesis 1, where God created the present heavens and earth. And the rest of the passage has lots of echoes of the Garden of Eden account of Genesis 3. For example, verse 20, God is going to push back the curse of death from Genesis 3 in some sort of way, providing additional longevity to the life of his people. Or verses 22 to 23 there, God's people will enjoy the work of their hands. They will no longer toil in vain. It's an overturning of the cursing of the ground in Genesis 3. Verse 24, the Lord answering their call. I'm not sure about this one, but I wonder, is that the reversal of when the Lord called for Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned, when they avoided his call? Is this the reversal of that? Or verse 25, animals at peace, the wolf and the lamb feeding together instead of feeding on each other. No more harm or destruction of life. What's the point of the creation imagery here? When in context, he's clearly talking about the fulfillment of his promises to Jerusalem. Is this just sort of exalted hyperbole, talking up how great his plans are to rescue Jerusalem? No, there's a fundamental connection between what God is going to do for his covenant people, the Old Testament Israelites, and his wider plans for all of creation. It's through his covenant plans for Israel that God will restore his original good purposes for all of creation, rectifying what was lost through human sin. So much so that what will come about through God's fulfilling of his promises will be a new Eden, a new heavens and a new earth, a remaking, such that, in verses 17 and 18, the old broken order won't even be remembered in comparison to the joy God's people have in the new. So as we see throughout, we'll see throughout these passages, God's plans for redemption have always extended to the whole of creation, not just human beings. Hence his promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And this promise of a new heavens and a new earth is repeated in the New Testament in the light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So turn with me to the very last book of the Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I wish we had time to just read all of chapters 21 and 22 out and just sit and reflect upon it because it's wonderful, it's glorious. I'm just going to have to pick out a few sections. Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to pick it up at verse 1 though. And as you follow along, Notice all the reflections of Isaiah 65, the passage we just read. You're going to hear about Jerusalem. There will be imagery from the Garden of Eden, which is a a reference there to the tree of life we'll come across. There's new heaven and new earth, the undoing of the curses from Genesis. A lot of the same stuff from Isaiah 65. See if you can spot it as we go through. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Let's just jump down to verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with, with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Then jump down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's a wonderful vision of the promised future. It's given to us for our reflection and encouragement. Note the assurance there in chapter 21, verse 5, and again it's repeated in chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. These words are trustworthy and true. God tells John to write them down for our encouragement and our assurance. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is meant to encourage you to persevere to live now in hope and long for Jesus' coming when that vision 
will become reality. And it's sad that we don't have tonight just to luxuriate, actually, in the wonder of its truth and beauty. Just to sit and read it and, and soak it in. So if you're feeling a bit flat in your faith and wondering whether it's all worthwhile, maybe you should take some time out and just read and reflect on these chapters and let God's promises fill your heart and your mind to strengthen your hope, your confidence in the sure future that God has promised for you in Jesus. Now, you may have picked up the similarities with Isaiah 65. There's the new heaven and the new earth. There's Jerusalem, references to the Garden of Eden in the mention of the Tree of Life, and significantly, the undoing of the curses of Genesis 3 that come about because of human sin. It says explicitly there in chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. So in chapter 21, verse 4, there's no more death or pain. And repeated throughout the chapters is the overturning of the curse of being excluded or exiled from God's presence. In chapter 21, verse 3, now God will dwell amongst His people. They will be His people. He will be their God. Or in chapter 22, verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb will be there in the city and the people will see His face. But the Bible is a progressive revelation from God. What I mean is it's a collection of 66 books written under the inspiration of God, but over 15 centuries. And so by the time we get to the end, these parts written after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know a lot more than those who were writing at the beginning. And so it's not so surprising that here in Revelation, written on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection compared with Isaiah, we're given more details here in Revelation than we did in Isaiah. In particular, this description of God's promised future, it focuses on Jesus, who shares the throne with God Almighty. We're told there, who lights the city with his shared glory with the Father, and in whose book of life your name must be written to enter Jerusalem. And we also learn here, it's not actually about the physical city of Jerusalem, currently located in the Middle East, because in chapter 21, verse 2, God has prepared a new Jerusalem. And though it's described as a city, it's, really, it's not really a city. It's another one of those examples of a place name being used to represent something, like yesterday we saw Canberra used to represent the federal government. Here we're told the new Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb. But we know from elsewhere that the Jesus' bride is the church, His people. So the new Jerusalem in the vision stands for Jesus' people, His bride, the one He died to save, so that they might escape the curse that came because of their sin and instead live forever in His presence. Notice finally in this vision where God's people end up living with God and Jesus the Son. In 21 verses 2 and verse 10, the new Jerusalem, representing all of God's people, remember, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. God had prepared it in heaven and made it ready. That's where He prepared His people and then it comes down. The final destination is not heaven. The final destination for God's people is the new earth, 
Our future is real, physical, resurrected life in the new physical creation that God will make. The final and complete Christian hope is not go to heaven when you die. The final concrete hope God gives us in His Word is life in the new physical creation, a new heaven and a new earth in which to live. Well, that's some truth from Revelation. Let's move on to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Romans 8, starting at verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You might know the story from Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve rejected God's ways and part of God's just response was to curse the ground so that the work would now be toilsome. Or another way of saying it is that the entirety of the created order, all of God's creation that we see around us, has been subjected to frustration, says Paul here. It's in bondage to decay. The wolf eats the lamb. The ground produces thorns and thistles when we try to produce crops. There's drought. There's struggle. There's suffering. And it's not just that the present creation suffers because of present human sin. That is certainly true. And that covers all sorts of situations, from disregarding the effects of human-induced climate change to the extinction of animal species to the degradation of natural resources because of overuse or damaging methods. Our failure to care for God's creation, which He's entrusted to us for His purposes... That is sin. And yes, it leads to suffering in the created order at the present time. But Paul is talking about something deeper here. As a response to that original human sin, God has subjected all of the created order to an inbuilt frustration and decay. But according to verses 20 and 21 there, Even that subjection of creation to decay was with the sure future hope that God would also then liberate creation 
from its bondage to decay and bring it into the freedom and glory of the resurrected children of God. So you've got to get your head around this fact. The subjection of creation to decay and the liberation of all of creation to decay, its subjection and its liberation are both tied to humanity. Because of our sin, creation was subjected to decay. And now creation is groaning, waiting for us to be resurrected so that it too might be liberated. That's why in verse 19, the creation is waiting with eager expectation for the day when the children of God will be revealed in their redeemed, resurrected glory because then creation too will be liberated from its decay and enter into that same freedom and glory experienced by God's people. Notice how Paul describes the present creation in verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Again, it's a birth metaphor. Something new is on the way, though it's coming through suffering. All of creation, including us, is groaning, eagerly waiting for the redemption, the creation, the new creation that is coming. Well, and finally in this section, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 to 13. Two Peter three, starting at verse five. Peter writes, "But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, you've already spent much time in 2 Peter this week, which I hope you found encouraging and challenging, so I don't need to say too much here, just a few comments. The day of the Lord, mentioned there in verses 10 and 12, picks up on an Old Testament theme, the day when God would come and judge. 
hence the association with fire in verse 7 and 10, which was often associated with judgment, as we saw even last night. And the mention also of the destruction of the godless in verse 7, all tied up with the theme of judgment. But in order for this judgment to occur, everything done on the earth will be laid bare or disclosed, exposed, verse 10. This is the point, I think, of the heavens passing away, being dissolved with fire in verse 10, as like sort of the upper layer, it sort of disappears, and then the elements, the middle layer, being dissolved, then everything on earth, everything, including everything that's been done on earth, will be exposed and disclosed. It's as though God were above the heavens and he clears everything out of the way, like you do in your bedroom, right? I wonder what colour the carpet is. And so you gradually sort of clear away the layer upon layer, and you say, ah, it is now disclosed. It is laid bare. Who knew what colour it was? God above the heavens clears everything out of the way so that he can see what is really going on. He exposes it all so that it can be tested, judged with fire. The point, I think, is not the fiery consumption of everything. The point is the judgment of everything, including everything done on earth and the destruction of the godless and their deeds. It's a picture of fiery exposure, burning away what stands in the way, and fiery destruction, judgment of the godless and their deeds. Now, if you stop and think for a moment, If God did just take away the sky somehow above us, and if he just then somehow cleared away the atmosphere, how would that expose in one moment all the human deeds done through all the centuries of human existence? It doesn't quite work. I, I think this is not intended as a literal physical description of the process God will go through. This here is apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is where real events are described with cosmic language and imagery. They're referring to a real event, but it's wrapped in this cosmic language and imagery. The point here is that God really is going to disclose everything. There will be nothing left to hide you. Everything, he's going to burn away everything. It will all be exposed. He will see what is really going on. And he will judge it all. And having described this judgment, the writer points out, referencing again Isaiah 65, that we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home instead of sin and evil. So does this description mean that the entirety of the present creation, the the whole world around us, the universe in which we live, does this description mean that the entirety of the present creation will literally disappear? Well, I'm just saying in fairness to the apocalyptic imagery that God has used here, and I think God intends us to read apocalyptic imagery as apocalyptic imagery, not literally. 
I would be very cautious to conclude from this passage that the present creation will disappear, especially when some of the other passages, like Romans 8 that we looked at, seem to suggest the liberation of this present creation rather than its destruction and disappearance. Paul Wolfe comments on this 2 Peter passage on the top of page 36, and I'm genuinely asking the question, is he right? Is he right? He says, admittedly, 2 Peter 3 uses cataclysmic language to describe what will happen to the created order on the last day, burning, dissolution, melting. But that language is fairly understood to describe a dramatic renewal of the current creation, not its elimination, since the Scriptures elsewhere speak of the world to come in terms that suggest continuity with the world as we know it now. Just as my resurrection body will be my body raised, so will the new world be this world's glorified. Lo and behold, the promised new earth will turn out to be this earth made new. Is he right? Maybe. We'll return to it in a moment. Maybe neither set of texts are really as clear as either group claim. Well, what is then the firm conclusion that we can draw from these passages? It's this. Because of our union with Christ, we can be absolutely confident of our eternal future in resurrected bodies, in a liberated and gloriously freed new creation, where righteousness, not sin, and all its curses and consequences is at home. Sorry if you were trying to get that down. Were you trying to get that down? Oh. I'm not going to read it all out again. You'll be raised physically in a new physical creation. There you go, just write that down. Where righteousness is at home, that is where there's no sin. You'll be raised physically into a new physical creation, new heavens and new earth, where righteousness is at home. That is absolutely certain. Now, I've already talked about going to heaven when we die and why that that's not a full picture of actually the hope that God has for us. So I'm going to drive straight on to page 37. And I want to keep digging into then what God teaches about this new creation. I'm going to ask a particular question. How new then is the new creation? Continuity and discontinuity and a contemporary issue. There is then an issue, as I've sort of already raised, about what the Bible teaches about the new creation. And this particular issue is getting a bit of traction in Sydney Christian circles at the moment. And the question that's being discussed is this, is the new creation that God promises a fully new thing, like where we throw out the old creation and it's replaced with a brand spanking new one off the shelf type thing? We get rid of the old one or... Is the new creation, as, say, Paul Wolf just suggested, it's this creation transformed and glorified, a glorious renovation of this present creation? So the first option says, no, the new creation is discontinuous with the present creation. The second option says, no, the new creation is continuous with the present. 
transformed, liberated and freed, but it's still this creation that's changed. There's continuity. And just to point it out, I think the language used in the Bible that it is a new creation, even when it says the old has gone and the new has come, I don't think that unfortunately decides the matter for us. Because a completely transformed, completely transformed present creation would still be new. I mean, it's true of Jesus' own resurrection body. He is the first fruits of the new creation. His old body was gone and his new body has come, but his new body was his old body transformed. The language of new creation works either way, whether it's an old creation destroyed and replaced or whether it's an old creation transformed. So the question is, which one is it? Now, before we try to answer the question, it's helpful to step back and notice why this has become a question at the moment. Seems to me, in contemporary evangelical discussion, the question of continuity or discontinuity has become a bit of a hot topic because of pragmatic concerns. It's not the question of continuity or discontinuity itself that's actually driving the discussion at the moment. Rather, there are concerns on both sides of the discussion about the implications drawn from the other position. And my sense is that the discussion actually doesn't really start with just a theological Bible question of, oh, is it continuity or discontinuity? Oh, and then let's think about all the broader implications of that. Rather, The real debate is over this different and more practical question. And the question that often seems to be at the centre is, should one do ministry or non-ministry work as an appropriate expression of a gospel-centred life? But then the continuity and discontinuity question has got drawn into the ministry or non-ministry work issue because both sides have used continuity and discontinuity as a supporting argument. Therefore, the continuity-discontinuity question has become the new discussion point for the ministry or non-ministry work issue. So I think the two sides of the discussion go something like this, and I'm, I'm genuinely trying here not to caricature either argument, though I am aware that I'm simplifying arguments down, and that always means I, I will have to skip subtle distinctions and nuance. But sometimes we hear reasoning like this. It's there on your page. Jesus tells us that we need more people in full-time ministry, which means we need people to give up full-time work and do ministry instead. So let me show you from the Scriptures that only the fruit of the gospel lasts into eternity. Everything else will be burnt up. Therefore, ministry, not other work, is what really matters in the big picture. So if you can, that is if you're of suitable character, gift and have opportunity, you should give up other work and do ministry. And then we might hear the other side of the discussion respond with something like this. Well, I don't like the way you've dissed non-ministry work. Therefore, let me show you from the Scriptures that non-ministry work done by Christians also lasts into eternity and is part of God's big plan. So therefore, your argument that ministry is more important because it alone lasts into eternity does not hold. 
So some observations then just on this discussion. First, the discussion is actually about whether one should give up other work for the sake of ministry. Interestingly, both sides use 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, which we'll get to in a moment. They both use that verse to support their case. So we'll have to look carefully at that verse. Also, both sides share the assumption that what lasts into eternity determines the thing that's worth doing. That's at least worth examining. And whether this creation continues into the new or whether it's a whole new thing is being marshaled as an argument in support of the ministry versus work position. So you might hear, all your work will be burnt up, so why bother with it? Just get on and do ministry. Or you might hear, our work lasts into eternity because God will complete and perfect it since it's done in the Lord and it will be part of the continuity of this creation into the new. So therefore, it's just as valuable as ministry. Possibly both sides there are overstating the clarity of the Bible on the issue. It feels, this is just personally to me, it feels as if both sides have announced the Scriptures more clear on the continuity-discontinuity question than the Scriptures actually are. And it feels a little bit like they've stated it more strongly than the Scriptures are in order to strengthen their case against the other ministry versus work side. Because I just wonder if we left aside the, the potential implications for the ministry or work question just for a moment, and if we just had opened our Bibles and were just evaluating the Scripture passages on their own, I wonder whether we would end up so do- in such a dogmatic position either way on the continuity or discontinuity question. The discussion over ministry versus work is important since at a pragmatic discipleship level, every single one of us in this room has to make decisions about what to do with the life given to you by your Heavenly Father. So it's a discussion that matters. But possibly it's sometimes been framed, I think, in unhelpful ways. And I'm going to try to suggest to you as we get towards the end of tonight's talk, a biblical framework, which I think might help us a little bit, just adding another perspective from the Bible to this question, so that maybe we don't have to resort to, oh no, this lasts into eternity, or this lasts into eternity to try to resolve the question. So, And two final meta-comments on the discussion as it's playing out as well. Yeah, just find somewhere to write notes. I don't know where you're going to go. Two meta comments on the discussion as it's playing out as well. First, any difference of opinion amongst Christians is always an opportunity to go back to the Bible and read it more prayerfully and with greater attention to what God has revealed. That's a great thing. So let's make the most of this opportunity. Second, We should be careful how we frame the discussion. Is it a conversation? Is it a discussion? Is it a debate? Is it a fight? You see how those are all a little bit different? Is this an issue we're fighting over? Or is it a question we're seeking to resolve together? Further, what's at stake in this discussion? Is it a gospel issue? By which we usually mean, if you take a different view on this, you're not a Christian. Those are the true gospel issues. 
Is there a clear right interpretation that all genuine evangelicals agree upon here? Are we trying to defend the truth against false teachers on this issue? Or are we trying to sort out just what the Scriptures teach on this issue as sisters and brothers together? I just notice on this particular question of continuity and discontinuity, having listened to lots of talks and, and read lots of things that have been published, all in the last eight months, on both sides, some have been presenting this as a debate with the gospel itself at stake and have drawn very firm lines in the sand. I think because of the lack of clarity in some of these texts, as we've already seen, and because sometimes particular verses may have been mis- or overinterpreted, drawing such definitive lines has, well, I wonder how helpful that's been. Now, we can't go over through everything that's relevant to the issue, but we can look at some key passages. So let's dig into the question a bit more by looking very carefully at a key text in this discussion, the top of page 38. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I stopped short last night as we worked through 1 Corinthians 15. I stopped before we got to this verse, which is Paul's sort of application for the whole great chapter on the future resurrection because we wanted to deal with it tonight. And what we're going to do is look really carefully at this verse. I'm like, we're going to look really carefully at this verse, like individual words in this verse. So this is an opportunity, instead of doing large texts, which we often do, to just do some really close work on one verse, okay? Let me read out the verse there as you've got it printed in your book. Therefore, my beloved, writes Paul, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, first, what does Paul mean when he talks about always abounding in the work of the Lord? What's, what's this work of the Lord? The good news is that Paul uses the phrase again in the very next chapter, which helps us a lot. So in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, he says, If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. The way Paul uses the phrase there implies a distinction between doing the work of the Lord and doing any other good work that you might do. What's the work of the Lord? It's the work of building the church. It's more than just word ministry, though that's part of it. Since in 1 Corinthians 16, the work that Paul and the others are doing includes the collection for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. So I would conclude that the work of the Lord includes anything that builds the church. All the speaking of God's words that we do, all the serving with the strength that God supplies that we do to build the body of Christ, both upward in maturity and outward in extent. Well, second then, how should we understand that our labor in the Lord is not in vain? What does it mean when he says it's not in vain? Well, again, looking at how Paul uses the same words here in 1 Corinthians helps us. In the same chapter, chapter 15, back in verse 14, Paul said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That was at the beginning of the chapter. Now at the end of the chapter, 
having demonstrated the truth of Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection as well, Paul says, because the resurrection has happened, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your faith in Jesus is not a waste. Your proclamation of Jesus is not a waste because it's true. He has been raised. See, when we read the chapter carefully, the contrast Paul is making is between preaching and having faith if the resurrection didn't happen, well, then it's all in vain, and preaching and having faith if the resurrection did happen, then it's not in vain. And that helps us identify what Paul is not saying. He's not saying the work of the Lord is not in vain, but every other activity you do is in vain. That's not the contrast that's going on in the chapter. Paul is talking about the difference the truth of the resurrection makes. Our work in the Lord, our preaching and our faith, it's not in vain. This means it would be a misapplication of this verse to say, see, Paul here is saying, all non-ministry work is ultimately a waste of time. It's in vain. No, that's actually making the verse say something that Paul is not saying in the context of that chapter. Finally on this verse, how should we understand always abounding? What does it mean to always abound in the work of the Lord? Well, notice there in verse 58, Paul draws three implications from what he said in the chapter. Therefore, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. All three of these relate to what he said about the certainty of the resurrection. That is, because the resurrection is true, be steadfast in your faith. Don't let anything or anyone move you from your position. It's just another way of saying be steadfast in your faith, really. And instead of giving up on advancing gospel ministry because the resurrection makes all preaching in vain... No, instead, always abound in the work of the Lord. The always, in always abound, parallels the being steadfast, be immovable. It's another way of saying, don't let anything deter you or put you off. In the same way that you're steadfast and you're immovable in your faith, so always you're to keep on abounding in the work of the Lord. He's not talking about the quantity of time you spend doing the work of the Lord. He's not saying always, every second of every day, make sure you're about... That's, no, he's saying keep going, in, keep going on it. You be steadfast in your faith, be immovable, and always don't let anything stop you. Just keep on continuing in doing the work of the Lord. Well, what about abounding? Always abounding. Well, the idea of abounding in the work of the Lord says it's not just meant to be a small deal in the life of God's people. Abound in this gospel ministry. There should be heaps of this, going, of this work of the Lord going on amongst us and from us to those who are lost. Why should, why should we abound in it? It's not because other work is insignificant or not worthwhile. We abound in the work of the Lord because Jesus is not a concept. Jesus 
Yeah, so we abound in the work of the Lord because Jesus lives and... So we abound in the work of the Lord. He's been raised from the dead. And he's going to raise all of those who have faith in him. And he's going to have death swallowed up in victory. And we want as many people to be in on that as possible. The resurrection of Jesus is such great news. Let's make sure that we always abound in the work of the Lord, to proclaim it, to grow people in it. Well, so does that mean that you, you should give up doing other work and give yourself instead to the work of the Lord? Well, sure, you should think about it. It's such good news. Whether doing the work of the Lord in a full-time paid capacity is right for you, well, that's going to be a matter of spiritual maturity, appropriate gifts for it, opportunity, suitability, other responsibilities you might have to have. But Jesus is alive. If you can, why not take every opportunity to speak about it? Now, that's not the only way we do the work of the Lord, remember? We're all to seek to ensure in whatever way we can as a community of God's people that we're abounding in the work of the Lord. And you can see there in Paul's letter, that will involve prayers, financial giving, support and encouragement of other gospel workers. Look after Timothy, he said, when he comes, he's doing the work of the Lord too. As well as their own proclamation. All of those things are the work of the Lord, building his church. The exact mix of these things for any individual will depend on their circumstance, their maturity, their gifting, their opportunity, their responsibilities, and so on. So I'd paraphrase what Paul is saying in this verse and how it fits into the context of the chapter like this. In the face of skepticism over Jesus' resurrection, which if it were true would make our faith and proclamation of Jesus in vain, know that Jesus has been raised from the dead and one day he will raise us too. So don't give up your faith in him. Don't be moved from trusting in him. And make sure you keep abounding together and as individuals in this work of the Lord to proclaim the risen Jesus and build his church. If we're understanding that verse rightly, then it's not actually saying anything about things that last into eternity versus things that don't. Now, there are other parts in 1 Corinthians where Paul does use, though, that way of talking. So I'm going to go move really fast now. Let's think about things that last and things that don't. I'm thinking about faith, hope, and love versus prophecy and tongues. We're getting all the good stuff tonight. You're going to have to read through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 yourself because we don't have time to read it all through. But the problem Paul is addressing is that the Corinthians are very excited about speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts, but they're not actually loving one another. So Paul has to remind them that love is where it is really at. That if you don't have love, you've got nothing. And part of what he says in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love never ends. Whereas prophecy and tongues and other spiritual gifts will end when Jesus returns, Love, 
along with faith and hope, will remain. So Paul is clearly mounting an argument that what lasts into eternity, in this case, faith, hope, and love, what lasts into eternity is more critical, more essential than the good things that won't. I've chosen those words with as much care as I could work out in my puny little brain with the help of God's Spirit. He, I don't think he's saying love is more valuable than. I don't think he's actually saying in the passage love is more significant than. I think in the argument he mounts in the passage, he's saying love is more critical, more essential than these other things. If you do these other things without love, you've got nothing. This is more essential, more critical, and it lasts on into eternity because it's more fundamental to who we are. But notice that 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 does not mean that prophecy and tongues are unimportant. Paul then says, actually, as a summary in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So even though the gifts don't last into eternity, they are still significant. In fact, using them is part of God's purpose, part of God's plan for you, how you be a good steward of the things He's given you. Though they're not as essential, as critical as love is. So the question then is, can we generalize what Paul's saying here about love versus prophecy? Can we generalize that and say that because our engineering, my nursing work, my English literature, something or other, Can we generalize and say, well, because that non-ministry work does not last into eternity, but the fruit of work of the Lord does, can we generalize and say, well, therefore, non-ministry work is less significant or less important than the work of the Lord? Well, I just wonder whether it might be better to reflect the way Paul talks about love in the love versus prophecy question. The work of the Lord, which lasts in eternity, is what is critical. It's what is essential. Our other work is significant. It's, in fact, it's given from God to us to do as an expression of love for Him and love for others. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But don't confuse it with what is essential. What is critical. But don't dismiss it as insignificant. Now, I've already talked about the transformation of the present creation, like continuity or discontinuity. As I talked at the beginning of the, this time tonight, we looked at the passages. I said, I don't think they're entirely clear. When you put all four of those passages together, I don't think it's entirely clear whether the new creation is continuous with this present creation or not. But the one moment where we do see clearly into the future is when we look to the past and the resurrection of Jesus. It was Jesus' old body that was resurrected, transformed, glorified. And as we saw last night, the same will be true of us. The question then is, but does that mean that the same transformation will happen to the rest of creation? 
that the new creation, therefore, will be a transformation of the present one. Some people think so. Some people think you can expand out from what will happen to Jesus and what will happen to us to, therefore, that's what God will do for all of creation. One example of that would be, say, John Polkinghorne here on your page. He says, God will no more abandon the universe than he will abandon us. Hence the importance to theology of the empty tomb with its message that the Lord's risen and glorified body is the transmutation of his dead body. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning within history of a process whose fulfillment lies beyond history, in which the destiny of humanity and the destiny of the universe are together to find their fulfillment in a liberation from decay and futility. So he says, if God's done it for Jesus, that shows us what he will do for the rest of creation. He will take the present creation and transform it, glorify it. Well, maybe. I mean, it makes sense. I'm just not certain the Bible draws the same theological conclusion with as much clarity as Dr. Polkinghorne does. The universe that God has put us in is a very big, complex, and mysterious place. I mean, we know Jesus lives now in a resurrected body. But where is he? If he has a resurrected physical body, he must be located somewhere. Where is that place? Oh, it's in heaven. Yeah, but where is that place? Is that part of the created realm? There are aspects and dimensions to this created universe that we just don't understand and have no idea about. Who can really say with certainty what the relationship between this present creation and the coming new creation will be, even given the passages in the Bible, which we've looked at, with their apocalyptic language and metaphors? Maybe Jesus' bodily resurrection points to the future transformation of this present universe, but maybe the connection between this present creation and the new is more complex and will only really be be apparent when we get there. But remember what is clear. The future God has promised is bodily resurrection in a physical creation liberated from bondage to decay, where righteousness is at home. So I'm now going to add another way the Bible talks about how we could live in light of the future, which I think can help us with these questions. But I'm going to get you to stand and stretch Spin around and high-five the person behind you. As I said, I want to add another way the Bible talks about how we live in the light of the future, which I think I want to add this another biblical thread into the discussion, which I think can really help us. And that's to see God's people in community as an eschatological outpost. Eschatology comes from the word eschatos, meaning end, Therefore, eschatology is the study of the end things. The Bible pictures the church as an outpost from God's future, God's promised future. The church is an outpost of the promised future who are now living in the present as his holy people, living in light of that future, embodying its truth and values. Hence, we are an eschatological outpost. Where do I get this idea from? 1 Peter chapter 2, 
there on page 39. One Peter two verse nine. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Notice who God has made us to be as Christians. Verse 9, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, fulfilling the vocation of Old Testament Israel. In verse 11, we're living as foreigners and exiles in the world amongst those who don't know God. What are we meant to be doing here? Verse 9, declaring God's praises. How do you do this? How do you declare God's praises? Ultimately, you do it in the gospel, by declaring the gospel, by saying Jesus is not a concept, Jesus is alive. He lives and he is Lord and he died and rose again for you. The way you declare God's praises is you proclaim the good news about Jesus in the gospel. You proclaim him as the means by which God has brought us out of darkness into his light. So we proclaim the gospel, but also, verse 12, what do we do? We live good lives, lives where we abstain from sinful desires. We live holy lives. Holy just means set apart, lives set apart from the world in which we live. We're set apart because we're seeking to live as God's people in his world. So here's the point. How do we live as this eschatological outpost? We do it by living and speaking God's truths. We declare his praises, we live holy lives. We're speaking and living God's truths. What truths? The truths of the future kingdom. We're speaking and living those truths of the future kingdom while we wait for it to arrive in all fullness when Jesus comes. What it means to, to speak God's truths and to live that out, that affects every part of your life. It affects all of your relationships. It affects your relationship with Jesus. It affects your relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters. And it affects your relationships with the wider world, those who don't know Jesus, but also the created world in which we live. It affects, to live God's truths affects all of those relationships. So we want to try to think about that. We can think about it maybe in terms of faith, hope, and love. The three things that Paul said will remain into the new creation, faith, hope, and love. What does it mean? to be an eschatological outpost when it comes to faith? Well, it means we don't just trust that God will keep his promises. We also trust that he knows the best way to live in this world in which he's placed us. Faith 
echoes in obedience. It issues in obedience. Paul calls it the obedience of faith in the book of Romans. A faith-filled people of God will seek to live His way, as revealed in the Bible, while we are in His world. And when we turn to the Scriptures, we see that such a life includes doing good to all. They're the good works that He has prepared in advance for us to do. So faith will issue in us seeking to live God's way now, in His world now, while we wait for the future creation. What about hope? Well, because we have this sure hope, the future God has promised, we can live now with patient endurance, not with panic or desperation. We know God has a plan, the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus comes, and He will do it. So I can live with patient endurance. I don't need to be overtaken by panic or desperation. But it also means not trying to bring in the kingdom ourselves. It is God who will bring in the kingdom when Jesus returns. That will be the work of God when He comes. No, what we're trying to do now is not bring in the kingdom. What we're trying to do now is be faithful signposts to the kingdom in the way we live now, in word and deed, as God's people together. We are being that eschatological outpost, the, the signpost pointing to the future of what God will do when He comes. What about love? Well, we have love towards God, we show love towards one another, and we show love to the wider world. And that love must drive us to proclaim the gospel. But that love must also be embodied in our actions. And when you read the Scriptures, you'll notice there's a particular compassion and focus in the Scriptures on those who are without. God has a particular concern that we don't ignore the poor and the needy, the widows, those who have never heard the gospel, the oppressed, the disadvantaged, those who are less reached, less resourced. Love also will drive us to call out injustice, to speak out for the threatened and the oppressed, to do good for those who are offering, obviously suffering. And there are a heck of a lot of, a lot of problems. Discrimination, Domestic violence, the effect of climate change on people and communities, animal abuse, massive inequality, child abuse, famine, flooding, corruption, epidemics, curable diseases that remain untreated, lots of real problems. And these are not what God intends for His good creation. They're part of the problem of sin, our refusal to live as people of genuine faith in God's Word and His ways. And as God's people, who do know His will revealed in the Bible, and who do know His promise that one day He will return to fix it, 
and who know his call to live as his kingdom people now, as an eschatological outpost, pointing and proclaiming God's promised future in Jesus, we can't ignore all those problems because we have to live as God's people now as we proclaim and live. But we must not divorce living the truth of the kingdom from speaking it. To address those problems together as God's people, that's a good thing, a genuinely good and God-pleasing thing to do, and it will benefit them and bring glory to God as we do it in Jesus' name. But if we met all of those physical, psychological needs and don't meet the basic, essential, critical spiritual need for knowing Jesus, then whilst it is still good, it's not addressing their fundamental need to be made new through faith in Jesus, to be reconciled to their loving Heavenly Father, to be saved from His coming wrath, which they are storing up for themselves. Genuine love can never be content with merely meeting physical need, no matter how desperate that need is. Love shares Jesus and the message about Christ, not just reflecting the love of Christ in action. The gospel is a message to be shared, not just lived out. Love drives us to address people's fundamental need, their need for reconciliation with God, their need to be a new creation in Christ. If you go back to 2 Peter 3, you could see it there. How does the promised future of a new creation impact on us as God's people in the present? He says in verse 11, live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And he says, verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. We need to be proclaiming the message. That's why he's waiting to send Jesus back. So, conclusion. How do we live in light of God's promised future? Be the people God has resurrected us to be in Jesus. The eschatological outpost of his coming kingdom, pointing forward together in faith, hope, and love, in word and deed, to the coming new heaven and the new earth where righteousness is at home. And to push further, take up the challenge of being this eschatological community amongst those less reached and less resourced with the gospel of Jesus. As I said before, love drives us to have particular compassion on those without, on those in more dire need. And often because the gospel does cause us to live lives of practical love with one another, places that are less reached and less resourced with the gospel have greater marks of unloved. The dysfunction, the corruption, the abuse, the lawlessness is higher in less reached, less resourced countries and communities because they haven't been affected, shaped, changed, transformed by the gospel of Jesus. So my question is that will we, and if you're at Sydney Uni and you're a believer, then we are the more reached and the more resourced Will we take up the lifelong challenge of living for Jesus amongst the less reached and the less resourced with his gospel? This is something that we at the EU at Sydney Uni, this is something that we could really actually do. 
you really could move to a less rich, less resourced part of Sydney. You could move to a cross-cultural part of Sydney. You could do that. You could keep your job in the city and still do it. You could move to another part of Australia where there are less Bible-believing churches. You could do that. You could get a job in IT there or work as a... I have a good friend, a graduate of the EU. She's moved to Darwin with her nursing qualifications. Why? Because she knows it's less reach, less resource with the gospel. You could do that. We could do that. You could move overseas. You have the education, the skills to work as a Bible translator overseas, to bring God's word into a culture, a language group that don't have any of the word of God in their own tongue. You could do that. You could go and work in Auckland. Well, probably, probably. You could go and serve God there. I'm not saying you have to become a vocational Christian minister. I'm just saying you could take whatever training you have and you could go and live in a less rich, less resourced part of the world and be a Christian, a trained Christian who loves Jesus and bring blessing to God's global kingdom growth. We can do that under God because we have the opportunity, we have the mobility, we have the means, we know the massive need we heard tonight about Slovenia. Now, get this clear. It's not that Jesus commands us to serve the LRLR. No, you have freedom in Christ. You need to hear that. We have complete freedom in Christ. But we also know the way of The way of Jesus is following him in voluntary sacrifice. We voluntarily give up what we could do, what we like to do even, because we just want to love others. We put their needs above our own desires and comforts. That's the freely given sacrifice we make as we follow Jesus. Not a sacrifice that's demanded of us, one we give voluntarily, joyfully, not counting our own comfort as anything in the equation, but delighting in the free opportunity to serve. So it's not a matter of you should go and live in an LILR area, nor that you should give up a non-ministry job and do ministry full-time. The Bible does not tell you you have to do that. The EU does not tell you you have to do that. I certainly am not saying to you you have to do that. And unless Jesus speaks to you directly, which he could do, I don't think Jesus in his word in the Bible is telling you you have to do that. He's just giving you an opportunity to do it. He's giving you the opportunity He's made you aware of the need. He's giving you the motivation. And he gives you the free choice. He won't love you more if you do it. And he won't love you less either. You are genuinely free. How will you use your freedom to love him, serve the world, 
and grow the kingdom? That's the question. We in the EU have what we call the LRLR pledge. You can sign up to make the pledge. That's what that's about. But let me tell you what the pledge is. Actually, if you go to that page, you can see what the pledge is. If you've got your device there. Hook onto the Wi-Fi. <laughs> I like that. The password is LRLR pledge. You don't have to make the pledge to use the password. You can just use the password. But uh, if you jump down to the very bottom of that particular page, you can see the pledge, but I'm going to read out what it's for you. It's just a way that we've used in the EU over a number of years now. So as we talk about this serving the LRLR, of just trying to gather ourselves and work out, is this something that actually I want to take seriously to explore further and commit to doing something? Let me read to you the pledge. It has two parts. It says, I commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider going to serve the LRLR in cross-cultural Sydney, the rest of Australia or overseas. So it's a five-year prayer-considering commitment. Commitment just to prayerfully consider going to actually, going moving going and living somewhere. And it's five years because I reckon in five years you probably all will have left uni and you would have the opportunity to actually move out of home. That's why it's five. So it's prayerfully considered that. Committing to prayerfully considering that and, second part, and I commit to doing something in the next 12 months to serve the less reached, less resourced with the gospel. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to move house. You could. That might just be, I just commit to doing something. That could be, I want to be part of the Kuzmin group on campus, helping to bring the good news of Jesus to those from a Muslim background. That's a less reached group on our campus. Or it could be helping with EU focus, bringing the good news of Jesus to those who have come to study at Sydney from overseas. There's a less reached group even on our own campus. Or it might be helping with a Sunday school or a you know, kids' church at another church that doesn't have many kids' church. There's lots of ways you can do something really concrete in the next 12 months without leaving home, without changing church. There's lots of things you could do to serve the less reached, less resourced with the gospel just in the next 12 months. So the pledge has two parts. I'm signing up to prayerfully consider for the next five years where I might go. And I'm going to do something concrete in the next 12 months. That's the pledge. I would encourage you to sign up if if you think, yep, I'm on board for this, this is a really good thing for me to do as I serve Jesus, I encourage you to go online to that page and fill in the details and submit the form. Then you'll be in the system and we will know that you've made the pledge and we will just all we will do is seek to encourage you to keep that pledge, make you aware of opportunities that you would have to further that particular pledge. We have had hundreds of EUers make that pledge. Hundreds. Imagine what will happen if as hundreds of Christians we flood out into God's church across cross-cultural Sydney, the rest of Australia and around the world to serve the less reached, less resourced with the gospel, the precious gospel of Jesus. Imagine what could happen. 
wouldn't it be awesome for Jesus? So I'm just going to give you a moment now. Just jot something down that you've been thinking about. Maybe finish signing up for the pledge online. Just do that now if you're keen about that. Just give you a moment to gather your thoughts, but then I'll pray. Then we'll sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great plan of salvation that you are going to make all things new, that you're going to liberate this creation from its bondage to decay and futility, and you make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home, where we will be raised bodily, immortal, imperishable, in the presence of our Lord Jesus, seeing him face to face. We so look forward to that day, Lord. Please speed its coming. And in the meantime, Father, please empower us by your Spirit, guide us by your Word, so that we might live as your holy people, as those who know the future, those who know you're going to bring us home into that new creation. Help us to live the truths of your kingdom now. Help us to declare your praises as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And so work in us by your spirit that we might lovingly sacrifice in the freedoms that you've given us to love all those around us with the great gospel of Jesus. We pray that you would indeed raise up a flood of people from Sydney Uni and the EU to take your gospel to those less reached and less resourced, that we might see your global church grow, that we might see people saved, that on that great final day, there might be people of every nation and tribe and language gathered round your throne, praising you for all eternity. Father, these are two things that are too big for us, but we know you are powerful, so we pray that you might do it from amongst us for your great global purposes and glory. Amen.